another just guest. We're excited once again to have another amazing guest. We've had a real run of them, and we're going to continue. Next week, we have Francis Fukuyama, which will be a really, I mean, it's something I've looked forward to for a very long time. I want to really thrash through some questions with him, some big questions, which we're answering now. I am uh, hyped up today. I'm fresh from a colonoscopy yesterday. Sally TMI, hashtag. And that was lovely, except the prep is just the most disgusting thing on earth. You have to drink this poison. Probably you, every, some of you have had such a thing happen to you. But anyway, it was all fine. So I didn't do the prep right, and I had to, had to do it again, and went back later in the day. And uh. Anyway, we have today the author of an important new essay that's out in the Atlantic, Jonathan Haidt someone I've admired and followed for quite a while now, is a social psychologist and professor of ethical leadership at the NYU Stern School of Business. His latest book, or his last book, was The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. And he just published a big Atlantic piece, as I said, Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid, The History of Social Media. John. Lovely to have you. Thanks for thanks for coming on to talk about it. Well, how wonderful to be here with you, Andrew. So tell me, because I start off with this question sometimes when I don't forget. Uh, that is, tell me where you're from. Where did you grow up, and and what did your parents do, and, and what was your upbringing like? Yeah, and I, I've heard you ask this question of of previous guests, and I thought about what I could say, and I think the only thing I can say that's at all revealing is that I'm just like totally normal, stereotypical, you know, Jewish, American, New York, liberal, grandparents from the old country, parents assimilated, you know, Jewish atheist from two years after my bar mitzvah, went to Yale, was a liberal, ran a handgun control group, like totally, totally predictable, stereotypical. Like and everyone I've ever worked with. It's, but in <laughs> yeah, it, you know, in terms of the literary, uh, literary intellectual crowd. There's a lot yeah, of them around, like, you know, yeah, you know, yeah. it's fine too. I don't mind. It's a uh... Uh, the New Republic back in the day, that was the, the everyone who wrote for it and read for it was that, basically. Yeah. And yeah. and boy, were they good at it. I mean, I people ask you, why didn't you change? Why didn't you bring in all these new voices in the New Republic? I'm like, the New Republic was the New Republic. I don't want to mess with that. Uh, I might be the token goy. I might have been <laughs> affirmative action. But, but I didn't want to ruin the incredible legacy of largely Jewish intellectual life in this country, which has had such an amazing contribution to our our American experience. So, yeah, you know, and like when, when it's new bursting on the scene, it has a vitality. But when it gets kind of concentrated and located in Brooklyn and says the same things over and over again, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going beyond what I know now. But just to say, just to say that there was nothing really, uh, there's nothing in my biography that I can point to that would lead anyone to think of, you know, how I got to where I am now. I think it's really just that the topic I happened to pick for myself in graduate school was morality. I should mention at Yale, my senior essay was on free will and determinism. I was a philosophy major, but I found psychology more interesting than philosophy. So I went to grad school at the University of Pennsylvania in, in psychology, and I was going to go for cognitive science and study humor, but the advisor I was going to work with actually had no sense of humor. And when I <laughs> would make jokes. He didn't seem to even understand I was joking. I thought, this is not looking very promising. So, so I switched over to a wonderful advisor named Jonathan Barron. He's a cognitive psychologist. And I worked with Paul Rosen, who's a really brilliant and wonderful general psychologist who studied disgust. But just because I studied morality and how it varies across cultures, that was, I guess, the, my first step in stepping out of the matrix, as it were, 
because you know morality is the water that we that fish swim in. I mean, you you can't. It's very hard to step outside of morality unless you're a you know a Buddhist saint or on LSD. I mean, those. And I'm I'm not joking. Like it literally, it really does take you outside of of moral framework. But other than that, it's very hard to do that. And it's I think it's because that sort of got me on the track to stepping out. And and when I went to India and did research, so I, I, I did a postdoctoral fellowship with Richard Schwader, a brilliant anthropologist at the University of Chicago. And while working with him, I went to India. And at that time, I was studying you know, a little bit of Hinduism. I'd studied a bit of Buddhism. And I tried LSD for the first time, all in 1993. And all of that prepared me so that when I went to India and tried to really put myself in a different moral matrix, moral mindset, when I came back to America for the first time in my life, my adult, you know, adult life, I actually didn't hate conservatives. I was like, oh, actually, wait, hold on. You know, I tried to understand this structured, religious, sex-segregated society on its own terms. And now for the first time, I was able to do that for the, the religious right. You know, and this is the era of the moral majority. I'm a little past that. But so anyway, that there you go. That's my, my personal background that, that can take a listener up to why I am doing what I do now. Well, let me ask you a couple of questions about that background, because I do think it's interesting. Why did you pick psychology over philosophy? What was, what was lacking in philosophy and what was in psychology that, that really mm. drew you to that, made, helped you make that decision? So I, when I was a kid, I always wanted to be an ex, not an explorer, but I wanted, to, I wanted to figure things out. That was my great pleasure, just figuring out how things work. And in my senior year of high school, I got hit with an existential depression, like not a clinical depression, but it was like a Woody Allen sort of thing. Like, you know, but if the universe is expanding, you know, why do we bother? You know, Alvi, it's not expanding in Brooklyn as the, you know, <laughs> from, you know from uh, Annie Hall, I think. Yeah, yeah, I remember um, that. So literally stricken with a classic existential crisis. Yep, that's right. Because yeah, I was already an atheist. And if I worked out, you know, there's no God. And I thought, and if, you know, if there was a nuclear war, you know, this is during the Cold War. I mean, they're really, you know, we thought a lot about nuclear mm -hmm. annihilation. You know, if there was a nuclear war and the whole earth was wiped out, what would it really matter? You know, in the long run, it really wouldn't matter. And so thinking along those lines, and it just didn't, there didn't seem to be much reason to do anything. And my life was perfect. Everything was going great. And, but I, I but that sort of put in me the resolve to study philosophy because there I'll find an answer. Philosophy right. will tell me the meaning of life. So right. that, you know, so when I, so I went to Yale, I was committed to being a philosophy major, even though my first couple of courses were really kind of boring. And I took a psychology class on a whim, and all the psych classes were just fascinating. Nothing is more interesting than how people work. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I had the, you know, I, I, when I went to grad school, I had exactly the same. I didn't have an existential crisis. I thought I knew what I believed. Unlike you, I was not an atheist. Mm -hmm. So I had the great inheritance of the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church to rest upon. But I was also a modern kind of small L liberal. And I wanted to go and just read as many different perspectives mm -hmm. as possible to see if my actual, my previous position was just a function of my background or my particular idiosyncratic autobiography and so on and so forth. And boy, was that fascinating to let mm -hmm. go a little bit and to explore alternatives and to read. And I yeah. wish I could, you know, convey this to students to read, to read texts that you found repulsive, but were fascinated by it. To read, mm -hmm. to read Dust Capital from beginning to end, which is, by the way, an unbelievably arduous ordeal, or, or to figure out Nietzsche, yeah. or, to, or to figure out the people who were the enemies of where I came from. You know, Foucault is kind of the, 
the gay Catholic inverted. And so for mm -hmm. me, Foucault was this weird spectral mirror uh, mm -hmm. of someone who couldn't handle the teaching of the church and responded to it. And of course, anyway, I'm now blathering on about myself, but, but psychology, it is, it is an absolute, and you saw that you, you saw some equivalence when, when you went to India, you saw things sort of anthropologically in a neutral, mm -hmm. you weren't connected. And then you yeah. came back, you'd see that in the same way. Yes. So I, I've never taken a course in anthropology. I wish I had, but I was working with anthropologists during my postdoc at Chicago. And when I went to India, I tried to be like them. And you know, Clifford Geertz, uh, mm. a little dictum from Clifford Geertz is, that, you know, your job is to figure out what the devil they think they're. Mm. Try to understand it from their side. What do they think they're doing? Why do they do this? And so I, I tried to do that. And you know, when Americans go to India, it's very easy to you know, be upset about the, the poverty and the gender inequality. And, and there are a lot of things one could be upset about. But if you, but part of, you know, part of what happened was people treated me really nicely. You know, I was hosted by an important family in this town of Bhubaneswar and everyone was so nice to me. And I, you know, there were people at the university who were welcoming me. And so it, that also really helped, you know, I liked the people and I really tried to see the kinds of virtues that they were striving at. And a lesson that I got from, from Richard Schwader is that every culture is, is expert in certain aspects of, of human being and human flourishing and is somewhat blind to others. And going to India is a pretty good way to see that about your own society. And I guess looking back on it now, I can say part of the reason why there are similarities between uh, traditional Hindu society and the Christian right are because on a world historical level, it's the progressive left, or what's called weird culture, Western educated individual, uh, individual wait, Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic. It's the work of Joe Henrik and, and others. So it's pretty much whenever you leave that sort of secular liberal bubble, the rest of the world is going to look kind of like it itself because you're, you're leaving the weirdest place in the world. And it really gives you perspective on it when you can leave that, that, that beautiful bubble and, and see it from the outside. So you came to see some merit in a religious faith, for example, or some traditional mores or things that your WEIRD self would have instinctively dismissed or disparaged or looked down upon. You were suddenly required to understand. Mm -hmm. And in, in trying to understand, you became more sympathetic. Is, is that a... That's right. That's, a, that's exactly what happened. One of the biggest influences on my intellectual life is Emile Durkheim. Mm -hmm. uh, when I read his, his book, Suicide, in, in grad school, I just, on a whim, I, I took a grad course in criminology. And the first thing we read was suicide. And it completely blew my mind. And it, you know, the basic idea is that there are social facts that are not reducible to individual psychology. And the suicide rate is a thing in itself. It's not just the sum of the depressed people who kill themselves. It's a thing in itself that can be studied. And But here's the amazing thing. The more you are bound in, the less likely you are to kill yourself. The more you have liberty, you're not tied to anything, the more you are likely to kill yourself. Mm. And this is from, I mean, he was analyzing the beginnings of suicide statistics in Europe in the 1890s. And, and he was able to conclude that you know the tightly bound people, especially religious Jews and then Catholics, and then were the least likely, whereas Protestants who had the most personal liberty were the most likely, and on and on. And so, you know, to see to have this be my introduction to sociology and to understand the importance of group binding and and his, I never actually read the Elementary Forms of the Religious Life, his masterwork. I've tried a few times; it's harder than than the others. You know, but the core idea is that 
we we feel this voice in our hearts. We feel this voice of conscience. We feel that something is right or wrong, and we interpret that to be God. Many people interpret it to be God, but it's actually society because God is society. So anyway, I'm just I mean it's hard to convey all of Durkheim in you know in one paragraph here, but but from Durkheim I I got the idea that we actually need constraints and restraints that there is a moral order and if we take it apart we sort of gasp for air and asphyxiate and so to going to india which was in, in a sense maybe there's you know, too much moral order in, in some sense but that really let me step out and question a lot of the of the progressive assumptions that i had brought with me this this actually helps us look at what is increasingly understood on the hard right and the hard left as liberalism's failure in other words Liberalism has given us such amazing freedom, such a sort of extraordinary number of choices, and increasingly attempts to validate each of us and mm -hmm. our, our worth and sense of being needed by the culture. But it leaves us adrift. Yes. It leaves us without these strong institutions, without these binding commitments, without, for example, fam deep family obligations that require us to be, you know, we leave our families, we, 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 we start out anew. And, and is this the core of the problem of the West? I mean, we, we now have, and maybe we could, this is a good segue into your, your essay, but we now have among our teens this extraordinary wave of suicide, depression, anxiety, at a time objectively when things have never been better for young people. And I, I'm, I'm particularly noticed these stats on what they now call LGBTQ people or LGBT mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. Because again, I've lived a life and I can't imagine a better environment than we've created for the gay, lesbian, bisexual, mm -hmm. or transgender people. And yet, right. they are subjectively experiencing yeah. what seems to be greater sense of despair and oppression than, than my generation did when we were openly discriminated against. We were dealing yeah. with a plague, and yet we were much happier. We were much more together. We were much mm -hmm. more self-confident and yeah. able to, to take our stand. And so my point to you would be simply, isn't all of what you're talking about? Uh, essentially a problem for liberalism, regardless of social mm -hmm. media, regardless of technology. This is a phenomenon that is driven by the logic of liberalism itself. Okay. Yes. But I would say, so, I, and I'll, I'll give you my take on it. I think you've thought much more about liberalism as a tradition than, than I have, but I'll give you my take on it. And then I'll say that whatever the, whatever the back and forth process of balance has been for the last century or two, Social media came along and ramped it up. It did things that 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 made it operate way outside the norms of sustainability. And so, you know, there's an eternal battle between the sort of centripetal forces and centrifugal forces, or or those who want more liberty versus structure. And in many societies, you can see, you know, when things go badly, there are some people who say, "Well, this is because we disobeyed the gods and the traditions, and we need to return to the old ways." And now that we know that. Politics is highly heritable. If you have identical twins separated at birth, reared in separate households, and they have a conservative temperament, even if one is raised by a by a progressive family, when they leave the home and make a life for themselves, that person's going to migrate to the right and vice versa. So you have a liberal temperament, you have a conservative temperament, which wants order and structure and is wary of rapid change. And you have a liberal temperament, which is questioning, 
which is like, why do we do things this way? And, uh, and is more sensitive to to harm and oppression, uh, and is is and wants change, wants to travel. Uh, you can tell if someone's liberal or conservative if you take a photograph of their dorm room. This is research by Sam Gosling. If it's neat and organized, and there are postage stamps and calendars, they're voting Republican most likely. Whereas if things are messy and and you know, they're late to meetings. They're more likely to be Democrats. And we all know this. If you go to a social function and everyone's neatly dressed and, you know, the men are wearing ties, it's almost certainly a right wing group, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, all I'm saying is what I came to see in the 20th century was that late 20th century is that there really is a value to having a center right party and a center left party or some sort of dynamic between them, because the left is always pushing for change. And the right is always saying, you know, you know, standing athwart history yelling, at least slow down, if not stop, slow down. Well, thank that's you for that, because that's that's exactly my definition of conservatism, and it always has been. Which is not stop. History should not stop. History, yeah. Conservatism is yeah. not about preventing change. That's right. Conservatism yeah. Ed, is Edmund about... Burke, right? Edmund Burke was all about careful, slow, cautious change. Yes, so that it's, it's real change and comes from the felt needs of human beings as they emerge and develop through time, and, and not a function of some ideological construct which you then place on the society and think, well, this is wrong. We have to fix this. That's and those are the two. And I agree with you. That was the genius of liberal democracy in the, in the late 20th century or the mid to late 20th That's century. That's right, yeah, in Europe and America. That's we right. Had, we had moderate Tories. We had Labour. Things began to shift, in, certainly in Britain, with Thatcher. But even so, Thatcher could be argued to be just simply rebalancing Britain back to its more liberal tradition. It had moved into yeah. a more statist and socialist position than it really, its character and its nature of its people really demanded. And, and then it went back again and so on. And then we, then, then at some point, these center right, center left groupings mm -hmm. just began to collapse. Uh, and right. they, the, 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 the water around them became, they became more and more isolated. And you see this like in the French. You look at the yes. French election. Oh my God, yes, that's right. So that's right. if you can go back, not that long ago, there was a mainstream Republican right, sort of center-right group. There was a mainstream center-left, the Socialists. They just finished with like 5% and 3%. Yeah, that's right, it's stunning. That's right, that's right. And yeah. you have Le Pen just... and Zemmour, who were the populist nationalist right. And then you have Macron, who's this uh, strange sort of technocratic neoliberal. Mm-hmm. That's right. So I would just complicate your story just a little bit by saying it's not just these two sort of center right, center left. It's there's a third, which in America we call libertarian, because the right, since Reagan, is composed of sort of the pro-business, you know, laissez-faire conservatives who are not at all conservative. They're, uh, you know, more libertarian. And then there's the social conservatives, the Christian conservatives. So if you have this, if you have three groups, if you have progressives, social conservatives and sort of libertarians, those are actually a balance that you need. And each kind of corrects the other. You know, like a game of rock, paper, scissors or something like that. And so imagine now, now the other key thing to add here is this, uh, something that I think is in all of my work is, is taking both an evolutionary perspective and an anthropological perspective, because we clearly are evolved creatures, evolved for life on the savanna in small groups with animistic religion and lots of violent intergroup conflict, but also good at peacemaking. I mean, so that's, that's human nature. That's the way we evolved as, as, as but, the particular. But John, kind of you know, as well as I do that, that I, couldn't agree with you more. I think it's a basic fact of human nature. But the very fact of human nature itself is what's in dispute among some people, especially on the left, where human nature is regarded as a function of white. The whole concept of human nature is a white supremacist yeah. idea. No, that, that's right. So actually, let me just drop in an idea that occurred to me the other day, which I think might be, might be helpful for a lot of these things. So many of the things we argue about it can be broken up into a, a, a scientific question and a moral question. And I think a lot of people, 
on both sides, I suppose, think that the scientific question it depends on the moral question. So let we, if, we know, if we're on one side of the moral question, then we know what the right answer is on the scientific question. And so it's sort of, you know, inverting Hume, you know, you derive your is from an ought. And if it ought to be this way, then it is this way. And so, so yes, I, I agree that's what's going on. But I think it would be just, you know, I mean, my God, the whole, the whole Atlantic article is about structural stupidity. If intellectuals have to give up the idea of Darwin and evolution and, and think that, it, you know, human nature is not shaped by evolution, that's really stupid. There's no other word for it. You're sort of shooting yourself in the brain when you do that. So anyway, the point I wanted to make about evolution was that we evolved for, for life in small, intense, animistic groups, but yet we, we, through cultural evolution, we developed certain institutions and norms and technologies that gave us liberal democracy. And it's like the orchid flower at the end of a long process. It's this amazing thing in which not just prosperity blooms forth, but right, you know, I think you and I were both born in 1963. And if you look at what was going on, especially in the United States, I mean, legal discrimination. And since the day we were born, you know, gay rights, women's rights, animal rights, environmental considerations, you know, LGBTQ. So it's been the most incredible run for progressives. Yet, as you say, in the recent years, something's going on so that you can't acknowledge that. You have to reject that and say everything is terrible. So I guess the story I want to tell is about and his ex, so this is kind of like the Babel story. You know, this, this ancient species of primate somehow manages to create these incredible liberal democracies, which are like a tower, and they're glorious. They're so glorious that people all around the world want it. They want to either emigrate to, our, to our, these countries, or they want to try to build one and copy the U.S. Constitution. Maybe if we, you know, put the U.S. Constitution in Uruguay or Paraguay, you know, it'll, it'll work. And then, or Iraq. Um, yeah, that exactly. That's right. To impose it from above, we're gonna we're gonna airlift it in. We're gonna drop the constitution. Actually, um, Afghanistan of all places. Uh, yeah. Obviously, it's just it's yeah. just sorry. Disaster. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. So anyway, all, yeah, yeah. yeah. all I'm trying to say is is I, I hope that everybody will lower their expectations for human nature and human beings. That is, see that our nature we we are living way above our design constraints. We mm -hmm. shouldn't be living like this, mm -hmm. but yet somehow we do. And so what we need to do is really appreciate what a miracle that is. And once you see it as a miracle, then you can say, "Wow, we better maintain this because this is pretty delicate. There's not a lot of room for for error." And, and this is provable. If, if people just if and this is another thing that frustrates me about the lack of knowledge of history. If you have an understanding of global history, of world history, or even just Western history, European history, you, you cannot but come to the conclusion that liberal democracy is an incredibly rare thing. It has existed in human history for maybe two or three hundred years at most. Yep. Uh, it, it's directly against some core instincts in human nature. Like that yes. person looks guilty. Oh, free speech? Let's buy yeah, him. Due process? Let's get him. All that That's stuff right. is so alien to us. So alien. That's right. If we uh, know someone's guilty, why can't we just kill them? And so we, in liberal democracies, we kind of train ourselves and we train our children and we try and discipline people to say, you know, I know that feel, but actually we are good. We are proud people. We go to war and we abide by war laws of conflict. We don't do certain things. We do other things. When right. somebody yeah, is accused of something, they have a right to say, they have a right, they're innocent before they're proved guilty. These are very yeah. weird ideas that come out of the English tradition and yeah. um, developed by liberal theorists. But they are incredibly rare and incredibly unstable because we're just not like that. 
That's right. And this is one of the great conservative insights that I got from reading. When I, when I, in 2004, I decided to start teaching a course on political psychology at, at UVA, where I was a professor for 17 years. And so I started reading conservative writings. And I happened to find a book on a book. I was in New York City at the time, and I happened to find a book by Jerry Mueller, a, a really fantastic mm -hmm. intellectual historian. And it's called Conservatism. And I just pulled it off the shelf. And it's I started book. reading the it's amazing. It's, it's, it's right. That's my first. Book. That's my first encountered Oakshot. Was he's oh, got yeah. selections of of all these of the great writers, but in the introduction, Mueller just lays out basic conservative uh, ideas of the conservative, not even mindset or temperament, but how conservatism arises in each era in response to the excesses of the left, whether it be the French Revolution or the American, or, you know, the, or American progressivism. The the right always emerges in response, and that one of the core insights is that institutions are hard to build and easy to destroy. And so that's the, the, the Burkean mindset of don't go tearing everything down like they did in the French Revolution. So anyway, so the, the, all I'm trying to say here is you said it's the, it, it, what we're going through is a kind of a, an eternal problem of liberalism. And I would say um, we developed a kind of a working liberalism in the 20th century where there was a kind of a balance between the, the, the left and the right. And then something happened in the internet age, something happened so that that complicated machinery and all the pulleys and levers, you know, it's like if the if this system evolved over centuries and all of a sudden, you know, you throw sand in it or you throw oil in it or, you know, you change the gravitational constant of the universe and everything works differently. That's what I felt happened in 2014. Something changed in the universe in 2014. And I've been trying to figure it out ever since. And I feel like I finally got a full statement of it. Like, I think I've done my best job in this Atlantic article. I think I finally figured out how it is that social media changed things so that everything is getting stupid. Take us through that process in the arrival of social media. I mean, I lived this, obviously. We, we, we both lived it. We were in our, yeah, yeah. We, we was our, in our prime life. This happened. I loved it to begin with. I thought it was oh, the yeah. most amazing thing imaginable it's for a writer to reach readers without an editor or a publisher was incredibly liberating and so i jumped in very early and mm -hmm. have continued since and there was a period i think in the early 2000s when the blogosphere began to grow yeah. where there was genuine actual substantive intellectual argument and sharing of ideas we had certain yeah, again we had certain liberal democratic principles so for example if you want to disagree with someone you always link to it so the person can read the other ar ar argument compare yeah. it to yours and make it their own judgment that was liberalism in it you know it was and it, really and, was. it was a yeah and the yeah. dish which we did we, we included dissents all the time we kind of made this an open conversation because in fact the internet could sustain what we thought was a really interesting conversation yeah but then once facebook and then fadely twitter came yes. in and everybody became one of these and then right. it began to first of all it sped up in ways that seem uh -huh. in, impossible to slow down mm -hmm. and then it, it 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 adopted all these these very liberal characteristics yes. explain explain to me yeah. give us a give us a quick tour d'horizon as it were of of the worst practices of this that were encouraged and of course designed yeah. made well, let me, designed yeah. to increase engagement right well rather yeah so let me let me tell it more as a as a, as a story or as a, as a narrative because the thing you have to keep separate in your mind is there's the internet which was is one of the most magnificent things in all of human creation and you know you and i remember the awe 
I mean, even in the early internet, before you had a browser, like, you know, you could just, I mean, it, it was unbelievable that you could just pop up somewhere else. Or Gopher, I think, was the first, uh, you know, system, whatever it was called. Um, I was in AOL chat rooms before I should ever have been in AOL chat rooms, but, but <laughs> leave that yeah. aside. Okay. So, so there's the internet, and then there's the smartphone which is the most incredible Swiss army knife ever. And I love my iPhone and it does so much, uh, good, so many good things for me. And then there's social media. And you know, if you think about these three things separately, you can say, well, the internet obviously is magnificent and is changing the world and it links people together. And connecting people has, is generally a good thing. And you know, the iPhone is this amazing tool and giving people tools that they can hail a taxi, order food, look up the weather, is a good thing. And then there's social media, which is very different because and here's the key thing. It didn't just connect people and it didn't just give people voice. Connecting people is like telephone call. You can talk to someone directly. Now, you and I, we're talking to each other directly, although we're both aware that this is a conversation that will be broadcast. But, you know, we, we've met before. You know, we respect each other's work. We're, we're talking to each other. But what social media did, I think, beginning in 2004, but with a huge change in 2009, is it connected people in, in a way that encouraged not communication, but performance. And if you are trying to manage your brand, if you are talking at someone for the purpose of trying to get reactions from others, now it's inauthentic, it's performative. And then the big change, and this is at the heart of the article, the big change is when uh, Facebook adds the like button in 2009 and Twitter copies it, and Twitter adds the, the retweet button also in 2009, and Facebook copies it with the share button. This is the key transformation where you go from platforms that are performative, they were already performative, uh, but now users are generating so much information of, about engagement that Facebook can use algorithms to uh, give you the stuff that will most likely engage you, which means especially trigger emotions uh, such, as, such as anger. And then the retweet button is even worse because the retweet button isn't just, you know, I like this, but I like this and I'm going to send it out to everyone I know who can then send it out to everyone that they know. So now you have this this incredible enhancement of virality. You know, we all learned about the R naught, you know, the R naught variable for COVID. And if R naught goes from, you know, 1.2 to 1.5, wow, that's going to be a much more contagious disease. But if it goes from 1.2 to 12, I mean, that's beyond what we can even imagine. That's beyond uh, anything that we've ever experienced. And that's what that's happens. That's fascinating because treat it, the viral, you know, it's a good, it's a, the, remember the word viral is like a virus. Yeah. And so yeah. it, it does have these sort of exponential epidemiological impacts that, that, that very quickly overrun any sense of scale or normalcy. Yeah, that, right. That's that's exactly it. That we we evolved in a kind of a linear world or an arithmetic world. And I remember in the early days of COVID, it was interesting. I mean, there was the divide between the people who were freaking out and the people who weren't. And the people who were freaking out all understood exponential dynamics. You're know, like right. Nicholas Christakis, who you had. Like he was early. It's like he, you, you don't know what. Like this is this is going to happen. Yeah. Um, because he understood by you know exponential growth dynamics. Uh, and in the same way. You know, what we see now is I keep hearing people say, oh, but, you know, you're overstating things because really, you know, most people aren't polarized. Here's a here's a survey showing that most people don't hate the other side or something like that, to which I say that that's pre-babble thinking in the pre-babble world. It kind of mattered what most people thought. Now it doesn't. That's irrelevant because it's all about the dynamics. It's not about the average. It's about the dynamics. And what what the newly viral dynamics did was it gave an enormously powerful megaphone, a deafening megaphone to four groups while shutting up everyone else. And the four groups are the far left, the far right, 
trolls and Russian Russian agents uh, who've been trying to mess with our democracy for many many decades. So you you have this new platform, especially tw- you know tw- pound for pound Twitter is the worst. Facebook has probably done more damage because it's so big, but Twitter is what I think has really made our institutions stupid because leaders of institutions who are always sensitive to public opinion about their institution, suddenly anybody who complains on Twitter, that could go viral. And in three days, it could be a complete disaster for your institution. And you have no way to address it. You cannot reach the people who are reached on Twitter. So the, at the heart of my article is, is the idea that petty intimidation, petty intimidation, the, like handing out dart guns to the world, if everybody can shoot anybody with a dart anytime they want, no due process, no accountability, just shoot them. It doesn't matter. Oh, and by the way, four groups of people get paid by the dart. The more darts they shoot, the more applause they get, the happier they are. So there are four groups of people out there shooting like crazy. Most people don't want to shoot anybody. Most people are nice. So they go silent. And that is what changed in 2014, is what I argue. That's when the viral dynamics broke out. And what's interesting about that is, to my mind, is that each of those groups, the far right and the far left, tended to focus their fire on people towards the middle of their own groups because that's who they could really control. They could police the boundaries. They could expel or include. So as you point out in what, I don't even want to use the word conservative, but on the right at this point, the accusation of disloyalty to Trump, the accusation of being a rhino, the accusation that you don't believe that the election was stolen was an opportunity to take people out, uh, mm-hmm. to take people out in leadership positions, to demonize them, to drum up rumors, smears, everything else about these people, to, in order to enforce essentially greater uniformity on the left, on the right, rather, in a way that prevented any real debate taking place about Trump. Mm-hmm. I mean, when yeah, you think that right. there were, but essentially dissent of, about Trump just immediately was siloed into another corner outside of the conservative world. And similarly, of course, on the left, the the fanaticism with which especially the younger generation of of journalists and writers attempted to revolutionize their own industry by purging it of yeah. anyone who didn't sign on to essentially the doctrines of social justice was really quite extraordinary. And their viciousness, I mean, the, yeah. the nastiness of this stuff, mm-hmm. putting yeah, up a list of, I think is the word. Putting up a list of names of people you accused of raping or assaulting or just flirting with, that was the the Mm -hmm. range of possibilities, Mm -hmm. putting them all on a list and then getting them all fired Mm -hmm. uh, with no responsibility for it and huge success. And with each success, with each scalp, you generate greater enthusiasm until Mm -hmm. what occurred in my industry, every single editor was bloody terrified. Yeah, of right. any of their writers saying anything that could be could could trigger this kind of swarm. That, that's right, and that's why you see this sort of the domino effect. So, so let's let's bring in just a couple other ideas here. First, you said the goal was to police the boundaries and control it and pure. But in terms of what are people's motives in doing this, to some extent, there may be a, a true and deep activism where your goal is to influence the world. But so, but I think generally more powerful are are your motives about your own reputation. We all care enormously about our reputation, how we're thought of, how we're, um, and so you know the dynamics of these, the dam- of these well witch hunts is basically it's the dynamics of a witch hunt are you you know you you by making accusations you get credit for yourself and you get some safety for yourself if you're out there calling out witches 
then you must not be a witch. Whereas if you stand up for a witch and, you know, at what Nicholas Christakis went through and, you know, the few people who dared stand up from at Yale were then called witches, essentially. So, so I'm not sure whether the goal is really to change the world to advance your cause or whether um, it is to gain prestige and safety by attacking the moderates on your side. But what it does on both sides is what's called the spiral of silence. This is a, a term from, what's her name, a, a West German political scientist from the 1970s. And I don't know if she was specifically noticing this in the communist countries, but what happens is there's a range of permissible opinion. And whoever's on the more moderate end, that still is permissible. But then someone attacks them and says, no, you are a traitor. You are not, or, you know, or, you know, on the, on the so my argument in the essay is on the right, the, it's you're a traitor. On the left, it's usually you're a racist. That's the usual attack or transphobe. Or it's, it's something about identity. So, so once the moderate, uh, the moderate left, let's say, it, it, uh, positions or positions on, on gay marriage, positions on gay marriage that Obama held in 2008, suddenly become homophobic. So that moderate fringe is now shut up or or alienated or or canceled, as it were. And then the range of of acceptable opinion now narrows. And what she says is that. It's, I'm not sure if this is her words or someone else's, but it's. But I think it is hers. We all have like a quasi-statistical organ in our mind to detect public opinion. And that evolved over hundreds of thousands of years where we were in face-to-face groups. And you kind of get a sense of whether most people support this leader or that leader, whether most people think that it was right or wrong what he did to her. So we're good at sizing up public opinion. But in the mass media age, it becomes much harder, she argues. And now take that into the social media age. And now you have no idea. What, what people actually think. And if, you know, if one person tweets something, it might be alarming, and it usually dies down. But if someone tweets something and five people retweet it, now you have the sense that, oh my God, you know, this thing is growing, and oh, everybody thinks this. So that's, that's what I'm saying here, is that this new, the, the new viral dynamics introduced by the like and the retweet and share, the share buttons, all of that, it created mobocratic algorithms, as Whale Gonan puts it. It created an environment in which our public square is not like a level ground in which we can walk around. It's like this weird, you know, trampoline minefield place where you don't know how to walk in a straight line and any move can blow you up. And that's, I think, and that really came to fruition in 2014. That's when it all came together and we started getting craziness on both sides of the Atlantic. That's when Gamergate starts, which is the first sort of big, you know, mob attack public thing. That's when weird stuff starts happening on campus. That's when Greg Lukianoff comes to talk to me and say, John, weird stuff is happening. It wasn't there in 2012. Now all this stuff is happening. There was a, there was a big cancellation in, what's her name? In, in, in Britain, there was a, a woman who had a view on gender, Jermaine Greer, maybe? I forget. What, uh, I should look oh, that Jermaine up. Greer yeah. was regarded as uh, persona non grata. I mean, J.K. Rowling, I think, it was, right, it was more later, recently. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's um, right. But yeah. But anyway, let me let me let me agree with you about that. The technology enabled this, but the technology was in line with philosophical and political shifts, so that the right began to essentially adopt rather illiberal ideas that, that we are going to elect one great leader who's going to solve everything yeah. for us. And are yep. you with us or against us? Do you hate these elites or do you support them? Are you a member of the global elite or are you a real American, et cetera, et cetera? Also, but on the left and among liberals, there was a complete collapse of liberalism. In other mm-hmm. words, people actually subscribed overwhelmingly intellectually to a new well, Wesley Yankel was a successor ideology, yeah, which is there is yeah. no objective truth. That the idea of free exchange of views is fatally naive because all these discussions are essentially really functioning in 
a society in which certain groups are mm -hmm. oppressing power, other power, certain power. groups. Yes, so the only power. thing that matters is power. Yeah. And in fact, truth is a product of power. Totally uh, so postmodern. Well, but it's but when that happens, when you have that yeah. idea, and then you're given a tool, a, this unbelievably potent tool, to promote your quote-unquote truth through the exercise of power, why would you not lie? Why would you not smear people who oppose you? Why would you not take any means necessary to advance your truth? And I think you see that in, in, in the media. You see, you see a willingness to replace any reference to objectivity with this moral clarity which requires mm -hmm. us to advance certain groups over other groups. In other right. words, liberalism also platform. collapsed yeah. simultaneously as this technology arose to kind of destroy liberals. Okay, but let me suggest that that your 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 thinking shows a kind of a pre-babble thinking, which okay. is normal human thinking, which is oh the left changed and the right changed. What I'd like to suggest is that maybe people didn't change very much. It's just a change in the dynamics. And so mm. just so here's how I would lay it out. Mm. Uh, you have most people on the left, I think, are still recognizably liberal, but there is has always been a far left which is rabidly egalitarian and very illiberal in just the same way that the Jacobins were illiberal, the Cultural Revolution. These are, it's an extreme form of egalitarianism that focuses not on lifting up the bottom, but on pulling down the top. That's the way it is in all these revolutions. And so that's not very much of the left. But with the new platforms, they have the dart guns. They're the ones who shoot. They have the power. Similarly on the right, so on the, there are the Burkean conservatives that you know that you and I respect, that, that you are one of, and there's always been this authoritarian fringe, which is part of the in, the, in America at least, is part of the Republican coalition. You know, since Ronald Reagan, you know, Karen Stenner, who, whose work I love, says that there, you know, that, that there are actually you know, lots of authoritarians on both sides, and there used to be a lot in, you know, on the Democratic side as well. There, she still there still are, she says. But I think what we see is the the sort of the the, the never Trumpers, the conservative intellectuals a relatively small group on the right, but they were the ones who were out front. They were the ones who were writing for a long time. And in the 2010s, it was the authoritarian side that really took power. It had a lot more power. And that group is not conservative. So what we're left with is we do have liberals on the left and liberals on the right. We, there are liberal conservatives who believe in the liberal tradition. But on the far left, we have illiberal leftists. And on the far right, we have illiberal and non-conservative uh, rightists. So I'm saying it's not necessarily that individuals change, although I think with Gen Z, we are seeing real changes in people. But I think in the post-Babel world, don't look at averages, look at changes in dynamics. So that even if a, a, a hefty majority of Americans believe a certain thing, for example. That only matters then, on election day. Right. And so, which is why, you know, I'm thinking of the, the selection of Biden as the mm -hmm. nominee of the party which didn't seem likely at all, and I think yeah. is in the future extremely unlikely that someone like Biden would emerge, mainly because, again, mid, uh, basic, pragmatic, middle and working class black voters in mm -hmm. South Carolina decided they're mm -hmm. not these crazy Wokies, and they understand Biden is probably the best person to deliver what they want, and screw these crazies, we're going to do, we want, we want to get back power, which is, which was, in my view, the right thing. But it was a rare moment when, in fact, the... But when you look at what Biden had to run on, mm -hmm. what he actually ran on, the program was dictated by the far left mm -hmm. and still is. 
dictated by the, there's not an inch of daylight between Biden. Well, there are some issues on the no, police. There are. There are. Police, yeah, there are he some. He came out very strong. He said, no, you know, fund the police. No, he's 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 done a few things like that. And yeah, his instincts, I think, are, are certainly not not on the, the, the far left. I don't um, know anymore. I think, I, I, I think he's I think he's such a creature of his own party that whatever they say, man, I mean, this is a man, a Catholic who wants the Hyde Amendment abolished. I mean, this is the person who's 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 now in favor of swift medical oh, treatment right. for young children. Yeah, yeah. He's, I mean, he's, he's endorsed. Absolutely. He uses the term Latin X. Since when does Biden use that term? I mean, in other words, mm. he's, he's not yeah. an independent figure. He's just a front at this point, I think. Yeah. yeah I, I can't comment on that. I haven't studied him closely enough. I, I like him and I think he's basically a decent, I do too. moderate, moderate Democrat. But I don't but, think he's but I think you're Okay, but but your your example bring us back to the election, I think calls attention to uh, the most single the, the single most powerful reform that I suggest in the article is ending closed party primaries and replace at every state every at every level these elections should be an open primary with ranked choice voting following following up in the second step. So that's called final five voting, and Alaska implemented it in a referendum two or four years ago. So, so Murkowski is, you know, the only Republican who voted against Trump who's up for election, because the whole point—I mean, the stupidest thing in our whole political system—is the closed party primary, because it means that our representatives in Congress don't have to care what their constituents think. All they need to care about are the people who vote in the primary, which is a subset of the people, the more extreme people in their party. Of course, so that's compounded by gerrymandering as well. Yes, which, which, that's right. Uh, to put those two together, you have structurally created a system designed in its incentives not never to compromise. Exactly. And of course, Madison, you know, Madison's whole genius was how do you take how do you take factional creatures? And he writes a lot about faction in, in, in Federalist 10. How do you take these creatures who are tribal and factional and put them together so that their butting heads produces something better than any of them could have produced on their own? And here I'm drawing from Jonathan Rauch, who does a great analysis in his book, The Constitution, Constitution of Liberty is a brilliant and very important book. And I was just looking back as I was preparing for our podcast. I remember the essay that you wrote in 2016, America's never been so ripe for tyranny. Mm -hmm. That lit a fire under me. That, you know, I mean, you laid out, it was May of 2016, I think, and you laid out what Plato said about democracy, which I had not known, and how, you know, I kind of knew that the founding fathers were wary of, but like what Plato said and the incredible passages in Plato about what democracy is and wh why it decays into tyranny because the passions of the people are easily led astray and you know also a radical egalitarianism that will refuses to acknowledge any impediment to it so another That's amazing right. thing that no due process yeah amazing Pla plato says that there is that in a democracy you lose various distinctions you lose the distinction eventually between citizen and non-citizen. Oh see my that. God! Exactly. And that's, yeah, that's right. You're, you see, citizens you, of the world. You yeah. lose the distinction between male and female because everything oh has to be equal. He has that there. Yeah. You lose the distinction in which, in which professors teach students. No, from now on, students teach professors. You it lose the self-confidence of the wealthy because the wealthy now dress like the poor. In other words, they try Incredible. and dress in slovenly clothing. This is what. 
Plato calls late stage democracy. When I first read that in grad school, that's another, I mean, you had Geertz and some other people who blew your mind. That blew my mind because suddenly when I read the ancients, Plato and Aristotle, I could see suddenly that this Whiggish idea of history, which could have lasted 300 years in my head, was not all of history. And in fact, mm. there are, these cycles have come and gone, that human nature is real, that human politics has a certain pattern. And so I was terrified that we would have, that this was an absolutely, and it, it happened. I mean, it's one of the and reasons you, I- You called it. I you, called you, it, and no one yeah. else, very few people, yeah. other people did, but because I could see this dynamic happening. And when I see it also in, in the abolition of distinctions, it, because everything has to be equal. This is pathological. If you get society well, can't I, run on those. There has to be some level of hierarchies which are nonetheless democratically accountable, but without them, yeah. it's chaos. And if chaos That's continues, right. so, and if and it's not just the chaos of violence or it's a chaos of meaning. We can't well, that's right. and that's agree what Babel, on a shared that's right. structure of thought. And that's exactly why I chose Babel as the metaphor. Yeah. The key line of the Babel story, you know, a lot of people just remember, oh yeah, you know, God got angry and knocked over the tower. But the key line is God says, let us go down and confound and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another. That's the origin of different languages and therefore of, of different tribes. And, and, and so it's about the fragmentation of everything, the breaking of everything. And so, but you're, but you're drawing on Plato and, and, and seeing such incredible augury, all, prediction of the future, I think also speaks to the incredible power and joy of ideas that I think you and I both share, mm -hmm. that, that, you know, we're in this big confusing world and it's just so vast and complicated for us little tribal primates, you know, from the African savannas. But, but, you know, just as previous generations would look to chiromancy or, you know, reading the future in bones or coagulation of cheese or whatever will predict the future, you know, there's a real joy you know, for, for, for many of us in the academy and, and, and journalists and, and writers to, to look through old thinkers and find gems, find ideas that can help us understand our confusion. And that's also what I was trying to do in this in this After Babel essay, um, is drawn many earlier thinkers to try to illuminate, where are we? Why is this happening? Why is everything going haywire since 2014? Yeah, I think the, 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 the consequence of both the intellectual shift against liberalism and combined with this technological shift that enabled the worst elements of illiberalism also to gain real power. And then you have other factors. You have the particular genius of Donald J. Trump. You know, whether mm -hmm. you yeah. hate it or love it, this man clearly has an astonishing talent at demagoguery and has exactly the skills necessary for tyrants to succeed. He didn't Well, except succeed. that he wasn't, no, he wasn't Machiavellian enough. He was a narcissist, not a Machiavellian. If he, he was often shooting himself in the foot. He was not, he was not very good at pursuing his aims. But he, my I, point is that he didn't need to be a Machiavellian because that's right, he was because so the, talented the, as a demagogue yeah. that he got into power on that grounds alone. And then, exactly. of course, because he lacked managerial skill, he wasn't able yeah. to really move. Mm -hmm. But boy, was he able to destroy. I mean, these that's people right. can't actually build anything, but they can destroy things. That's right. And that's an important point about social media. And this, this I take from Martin Gurry. There's just, there's just so many great books. There's so many ideas out there to explain what's going on. But there's so much coming in, it's hard for us to ever, ever read it. And that's actually what's one of the fun things, I think, about podcasts is, you know, we, we able to, you're able to sort of 
get to know some thinkers fairly deeply in 45 minutes or, or an hour. But let's see. Oh, what was it? Oh, before you said it's pathological, the, the erasure of distinctions, things like that is pathological. I, I would I would say the pathology is a little bit different. I agree with you that you can't run a society without distinctions. But I, I would identify the pathology is the loss of viewpoint diversity, the loss of a break or an opposition, the loss of anyone to say no or to question. So so society is never going to be stable. You're always going to have a shifting balance based on pushing this way and that. So it's just like, you know, the body has the, I think it's called allostasis. Our bodies are not homeostatic, they're allostatic, which means there's not a single point that we come back to. There's a shifting balance point depending on conditions and society is the same way. And so if you imagine, you know, a a species like ours that's evolved for millions of years and our bodies have all these allostatic mechanisms, and then all of a sudden, you know, everything you drink is sugar. Like that would totally wreak havoc on on our insulin system or, you know, whatever those systems are. Well, it did, didn't it? Uh, that, yeah, well, there you go. That's Sometime right. in the 60s and 70s, they started putting corn syrup Sugar in, in, in everything, and everything tasted a lot better and was lovely and everything. And then we're, and suddenly we look around and we're all completely obese. And then, Perfect. of course, okay. because we're obese and we live in democratic, egalitarian insanity, we also have to say that being obese is great. It's yeah, healthy. that's right. It's a model for you because we can exactly. make no distinctions, no hierarchies at all. So that's that, but that's a really nice example of the, you know, we must derive our is from our oughts. If it ought to be the case that everyone is equal and good and everything is okay, then it is the case that obesity is not bad for your heart or whatever. I, again, I don't know that any yes, of the science Yes, and if there, you but, do not agree with that, you are morally then wrong. you are, exactly, that's right. You are actually right. hateful. Yeah. There's, there's, no, there's no word in this new ideology for sort of mild discomfort, somewhat yeah. disagreed, a little yeah. uncomfortable. It's either, either pro or you hate. This yeah. horrible word hate, which is used like a, a bludgeon. Yeah. But let me get to yeah. oh, wait, wait, but hate has no home here. <laughs> Love conquers hate. Stop the hate. I, I'm honestly, I live, I live in a community of such <laughs> banality, and the gay world has become just this is cringy as all hell. But let me talk about language because Babel is about language. Yes, and this is the other thing. We are in a state where we can't even, we're having a fight over language about words like woman and man, right? So mm-hmm. we have very basic building blocks of our understanding of the world mm-hmm. yeah. being deliberately subverted because, mm-hmm. of course, those a sexual binary kind of, even though it doesn't actually, it, 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 it implies equality actually between men and women who cries that, mm-hmm. that or complementarity. Amazing 50-50. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. our species developed the 50-50 men, women, I don't know, maybe because of patriarchy, you know, because of <laughs> reproductive strategy for Christ's sake. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, yeah. it's pretty damn obvious. But if you then cite science on that, if you incite our reproductive uh, strategy, mm-hmm. you are simply, and this is the argument, echoing white supremacist talk because only white yeah, supremacists right. and Europe constructed the sex binary. There was mm-hmm. no difference between men and women and there is no difference between women in every other culture mm-hmm. in the world from history. <laughs> just, yeah, that's and right. that and every point, other species. I don't know what to say. Yeah. I don't right. know what to that's say. Right. Yeah. So this is, it's, it's such a rich topic. We could come at it from the psychology of religion in which like David Ooh. Sloan Wilson and many others have pointed out that to show your faith in a religion, it, it helps to believe impossible things. I think Noah Yuval Harari has something like, it's not our ability, to, oh shoot, it's, our, it's not our ability to share truth that binds us together. It's our ability to share lies or falsehoods. 
that binds a, a religion mm. or a, a group together around national myths, things like that. So there's that. But I think it's the simplest way is just to say there's a there's there is a an intense religious sentiment in which the facts are are downstream from the moral beliefs, mm-hmm. and and that's always been the case. That there are people who believe that. In fact, passionate people are always going to believe that. But in the past, there was a break. In the past, a professor might say, "Well, no, actually, you know, as Richard Dawkins put it, I think it was Richard Dawkins, uh, sex is just about the most binary thing in the entire biological <laughs> world. Like, it's you know, one gamete has to travel and the other one doesn't. Like, you can't have you know, if you're a mammal, that has to happen. So now um, you're a bigot for saying that. You're as you're it, erasing right. yeah, or transphobe you are, or something. You are, no, you're killing." trans children right now you're murdering them any statement that suggests that there is a debate here or that we can have a conversation about this is a function merely of of hatred and then what i'm I'm interested in is instead of making arguments if we're in a we just change the meaning of words this is orwell's great insight into into religious totality what he Mm. calls nationalism which is simply a version of compulsory orthodoxy and the ability to use the language pregnant people, for example. I'm just using this because it's very much in the news right now, but also because it just, you're aware suddenly, oh, that people with people with uteruses is a phrase used in the Washington Post? <laughs> or suddenly yeah, you're reading like the New York Python. Times and they're talking about a, a, some gay thing and it's yeah. queer? Mm-hmm. Like, when did queer become a word to describe all, all gay people? Well, it was a word picked up by some a faction on the far left to reclaim it. And that now is what the New York Times takes to be the, the moderate mainstream position. Yeah. Uh, so you can't even read these terms, LGBTQIA+, for example. Yeah. I yeah. saw Anna Navarro look at Pete Buttigieg and says, you're LGBTQ, aren't you? And he says, yes. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're not a lesbian. You're not bisexual. You're not transgender. <laughs> you're not even, you're the yeah. last thing from queer. You're a gay yeah. man. Like, why can't that's you right. say that? Yeah. Why are you that's changing right. there's the just, words? That's right. There's, there's this almost 19th century notion of race as like these big groups, like, you know, the white race and the black race and the LGBTQ race. I mean, it's like an effort to create these large identities when a person, as you say, a person is a gay man or a trans woman or whatever, but they're not. All of these things, unless and you have thirty percent of them voted all... for Trump last time around, as mm-hmm. far as we can yeah. tell, they they have a vast variety of views themselves. People are often in conflict with one another; they have disagreements and arguments. Yeah. Normal humans, yeah. the same truth yeah. with the black community, where where you have a very interesting debate going on, many aspects of it. But when you go to mainstream white media, you there's only one position for yeah. African Americans, and yeah. and that's how the whole thing is framed. Yeah. Well, let's, let, I want to follow up on this business about words a bit, because something that really puzzled me from 2015 on is how many of the campus protests and how many of the blowups and the things we read about in the paper are not because someone expressed an idea. It's because someone used a word. Mm. And it's rarely about ideas. It's, mm. it's I don't know if it's majority, but it's usually a single word mm. or phrase. And the, I, you know, the, the best way I can interpret this is that, you know, our our tribal psychology is shown in gangs and fraternities and all kinds of groupish things. You know, gangs have gang signs. And if you use the wrong gang sign in the, in the wrong part of town, you're going to get jumped on. And so there's an effort to, there's just a lot of thinking about words. And, and here there's a big asymmetry. And I want to be clear that the threat to the Republic from, from, from a president who tries to steal an election, says beforehand he won't abide, doesn't do peaceful transition of power, encourages storming. I mean, all these things 
this is the most immediate threat to the republic. And people accuse me of both sidesism, and I plead absolutely guilty. I will always look at both sides before I come to an opinion, and usually each side is right about something. So I'm totally guilty of that. And I think, as I think, epistemologically speaking, I think that's the right way to go, especially for anybody who's a, a professor. But with that said about the right, it is true. Some people have noticed that I, you know, in more of my writing, I'm criticizing the left because that's where I live. That's where it's the epistemic institutions that we rely on. Of course, you know, we, we need people not to storm the capital too, but you know, we need universities, journalism, we need the courts, we need the creative industries, we need these things to work. And it's this endless focus on words rather than actual policies that is frustrating and annoying. And ultimately, you know, the idea that if we change what we call someone, it's going to change the way they behave. Yeah, you know, maybe a little bit in some experiments, but often not in other experiments. But if we actually had policies that affected real things, like, well, that would make much more of a difference. Yeah. So the, the f fussing with words, I think it, 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 it wastes time on the left. And again, on election day, it's just not popular. So yeah. it, this is also a religious thing. Religion is obsessed with what you, comes out yeah. of your mouth. Yeah. So, naughty words, bad words. You can't say that. You can't do that. You, these things are out of bounds. These words. Mm. I often think that Harvard. Or in other is words, just, are Harvard is just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Harvard is just returning to its roots as a divinity school. It just teaches a different form of religion. It has the same rigid behavioral codes. Like you now, the, the, if you think sex was 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 micromanaged by the Victorians, you should have a look oh, at yeah. these people. It's it's yeah. it's constantly micromanaged. There's no space for anything. That might not be sub might not be subjected to inquiry and judgment mm -hmm. instantly. This has been a, a fascinating conversation, which has led me led to me being completely uh, desperate and uh, a sense that these dynamics, because they're so rooted in human nature, because we're at that stage in our political development that we are in a kind of late stage democratic experiment, because the elites of essentially of this Enlightenment built country are now firmly rejecting the Enlightenment, and because we have then introduced this. The, what you call a, a sort of a, an array of darts we can throw at anyone all the time. It's also impossible to clear our way through this mess. So my view is we're all completely doomed. And uh, <laughs> well, let me put it that way. What is, what can we do? I mean, my only response to this is I'm just going to keep saying what I say. I'm going to keep trying to practice what I think of as liberal democracy. I'm going to talk mm -hmm. to people I disagree with. I'm going to raise questions. I'm going to air dissents, all, all the same. But, but I don't have any hope that 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 i can change things i have no hope for example that on this trans question we could have some kind of sane compromise instead of this insane war so tell me what gives you optimism what practically speaking do you want to do to help yeah so i'm not optimistic i'm actually very very pessimistic about the next 5 10 or 15 years but i think if we take the big picture here and we and we see you know in part you know the steve pinker story that in the long run things get better and we see that Liberal democracy, while not necessarily so robust, can have many different forms. And I think it might be, you could say we're in late stage liberal democracy, if you like, and I think that's reasonable to say, but something else will come afterwards and it might be another form of democracy. It might be authoritarianism. It might be because the technology helps China be a better authoritarian country. It helps them manage the, the economy and the people much better than without you know, in Mao's time, they couldn't have this level of surveillance. And the technology is making it harder for liberal democracies to have people have a voice in a constructive way. So it's possible that the future is authoritarian. 
But I think, you know, I just listened to Tristan Harris's podcast. He, he interviewed someone, someone in the Taiwanese, not government, in, the, in Taiwan, apparently, they're doing all sorts of, they're, they're using the technology, they're using digital technologies in ways to have better democracy, in ways that avoid the viral dynamics, but give people the voice on policies and things get better because of public input. So I think where we are is, you know, if you think like a complex dynamical system with a certain topography, and we're kind of stuck in a rut now, but if we could get over the hill, Sometime it might be 20 years in the future, it might be 100 years in the future. There is another place we could be where the technology is a huge boon to democracy and we have societies that are better than anything we've imagined. That is, I'm sure that that is possible. I don't know that we'll get there, but I'm sure that that is possible. And so the, the, the ways we need to think about this, if we think about society as a complex dynamical system, is not how do we push the ball up the hill to get to the other side? It's how do we change the slope of this hill? How do we reduce this hill so we make a channel? How do we make things? And when everybody can throw darts at everybody and everybody reasonable cowers in fear, well, that was a real setback. So what we need to do is change the dynamics in certain ways. And the three that I lay out in the essay are, one, we have to harden our institutions against polarization and anger, and I think violence. I think there's going to be uh, I just started reading Barbara Walters' book, How Civil Wars Start, and I think we do have a lot of the signs. Militias on the right, identity focus on the left. Those are two of the signs of coming of, of impending civil war. And so I think we are going to have increased political violence, assassinations, things like that. So how do we have democratic institutions that can still function even when there's a much higher level of anger and fear? And that's why having more non having everything be as nonpartisan as possible, not letting the parties run the game. So there are things we need to do to harden our democratic institutions. The second bucket is we have to make uh, social media much less toxic to democracy. We have to we have to not let it super empower the far left and far right, but let it empower the exhausted majority or the middle. And so I think identity verification is the most important single step that we could do. That is, in order to be on a platform, in order to post on a platform that gives you this kind of viral amplification, you don't have a right to amplification, you have a right to free speech, but you don't have a right to amplification. You have to at least, you know, with banks, you can't just open an account and give them a bag of money without any identification. There's no, they have know your customer laws. And now that we see what these platforms do to democracy, to Gen Z, to, to, they're able to cause enormous harm in so many ways, I think it's quite reasonable to say the major platforms over some certain size need to at least establish that a person opening an account is a real person in a particular country, and they're old enough to use the platform, just those three things. And then you can post with whatever fake name you want. But, it, but at least now that would, that would make it much harder for the Russians and for trolls to just open hundreds of accounts and, and harass people. And then the third is we have to prepare the next generation to live in this crazy, post-Babel, frightening world. And we're doing exactly the opposite. We're making them more fearful, less able to cooperate, more thin-skinned, and we need to be doing the opposite. So the most important things I think we can do are raise the age internet adulthood to 16. It's crazy that the age is set at 13 and it's not enforced. So, you know, when my kids hit sixth grade, they said, you know, dad, everybody's on Instagram. Can I have an account? And I had to say, no, we're all in a trap. Nobody wants their kids on Instagram at the age of 11 or even 13. So we have to raise the age. And then we have to give kids free range childhoods where they play without adult supervisions. They learn conflict resolution skills. This is one of the major, these are the two major reasons I think Gen Z is malfunctioning. As Greg and I argued in our book, 
It's the combination of the vast overprotection, the denial of normal growth experiences in childhood, combined with too early entry into social media around age 11, 12, 13. So those are the two big reasons why Gen Z, the rates of depression, anxiety, suicide, they've more than doubled just since 2012. So there are a lot of things we can do, but I, I would urge us to think about parameters. On the other hand, on the other hand, in the article, all I talked about was parameters. And I'm kicking myself that I didn't actually pick on what you just said, which is you're going to keep engaging people and doing what you can do and, and, and living a life of ideas and doing good democratic intellectual citizenship. And I should have said, I should have said in the article that the main thing we can all do is just go easier on each other. Just engage with people with an open heart. And even if someone attacks you, you know, they don't understand you, but by the same token, you don't understand them. You don't understand why they're doing it. And so, you know, I think if we could all go easier on each other and also cut our social media use by 50% or 80%, just reduce it. It, it, it. Don't spend so much time and energy on it. Those are parameter changes also. Kindness and disengagement from social media, those would have a big effect if a lot of us did it. If major media companies also barred their journalists from being on Twitter, uh, their reporters yes. and writers, <laughs> yes. then that yeah. would also have a huge, I think, positive. Yeah, at least benefit. from posting on Twitter. Why are reporters posting on Twitter? It makes no sense. I totally understand why they're all glued to it to see what happened five minutes ago. But why they're allowed to post, you know, other than maybe just promoting their articles. But yeah, I agree. It, it well, really it is definitely it is definitely under underlined the conservative critique of the media that all these people are closet lefties who yeah. are clearly skewing not everything, not yeah. necessarily out of malign no, intent, no. but out of just sort of inability to understand what's happening on their side. Again, I see this with talking about the trans issue. You know, only now are the Washington Post or the New York Times actually publishing pieces. That say there's a debate about whether we should rush kids into uh, puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. They, yeah. yeah, only yesterday did they have the first piece by someone who's now 50 who yeah, transitioned at 19 yeah. and explained. And this is what you will find if you talk to people in the middle of this. Is it complicated? It's difficult. It's yeah. incredibly difficult to know if a child is who is expressing gender dysphoria is actually trans or might be just proto-gay. We just mm -hmm. don't know. Yeah, These right, are children. Right. They don't even know. They don't know what an orgasm is. They don't know what a marriage. They don't yes. know what sex is. They know nothing yeah. about themselves. Now, some of them do know uh, in, in, in a very profound way that they're the other sex. And mm -hmm. that's, right. that should be dealt with. Again, you, that should be tackled, understood. These kids should be supported, loved. They should be given every possible. But it seems to me that there are some things you just don't want kids to make decisions before they even hit puberty that will affect them for their entire lives. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, right. It's just yeah, a so common sensible thing. And yet yeah. this is completely incapable of being raised because yeah. the minute no, you but, say that, but, you're a yeah. hater. But, 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 but this is actually a very hopeful sign. It's kind of pathetic that mm -hmm. this is a sign. But the fact that the New York Times published something on this is actually an incredibly hopeful sign. Yeah. And that they came out for free speech. Can you imagine that? The New yes. York Times coming out with support of free speech. Of course, they got yelled at a lot. Did. But yes, <laughs> they also fucked it up. But nonetheless, yeah, a good. But I think there are, there are at least there are people. There, there are some signs of there, there, there are some signs. Yeah, in there the are some signs that understand. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So if the if the key idea in the article is structural stupidity, it is possible 
that we will start to see the return of debate within the New York Times and within universities and and in other parts in other epistemic institutions. If we if we lose those institutions, we we can't function as a country. But if this we is my other them, real concern about this: is that essentially people right of center don't feel at home in the academic institutions. No, don't feel right. at home in the journalistic institutions. Don't feel at home in the cultural institutions and are effectively barred from them. They tend to go into business or they go into other areas. Yep. Yep. So we simply lack a conservative elite anymore that is that is competent, capable, professional, has PhDs, mm -hmm. economic specialties, social specialties. I mean, they're, it's still there to some extent, but you can't run a country with the entire elite being tilted to the left and the entire population being essentially tilted to the right yeah. in a way that could possibly lead to anything but incredible dysfunction and distrust. Well, no, that, that's right, because it's not the entire elite on the left. It's a certain kind of elite on the left, and there's other kinds of elite on the right. And that is a recipe for civil war, too, when you have conflict among the elites. Peter Turchin talks about this as one of the one of the hallmarks, one of the reasons why societies collapse and then have a have a rebirth later. So, so the problem is to deliberately purge these academic institutions of any one right of center. And that so means it, that, that so we I'm can't not sure, have I, a debate no, I, at that I, level. No, I wouldn't say that liberals have deliberately purged them. I would say that. The, there is a dynamic that occurs, very well studied by social psychology, of the dynamics when there's a, a strong majority, especially if it's around an issue, a moral issue. And so it wasn't. I don't think it was necessarily deliberate. It's just that there are low-level dynamics such that if somebody invites, now if somebody invites Arthur Brooks, who's right of center, he doesn't get protested because he just talks about love and happiness, and you know he'll he'll you know he'll have some conservative sensibility, but he doesn't touch the hot button issues. If somebody talks about race or gender or trans. That's another story that will produce that will produce uh, protests, but that's not a deliberate orchestrated thing. I think that just comes out of the low level dynamics, especially of Gen Z since 2014. The, the idea that campus should be a, a pure space and, and certain ideas should not be allowed on it. But your point about the the the, the political purification of the universities and elsewhere is a really important one. Throughout the 20th century, American universities were two or three to one left-right ratio, whether you look at self-identification or voting records. It was only about three to one up until the mid-90s. And then all of a sudden, it starts climbing. And that's why I, I co-founded Heterodox Academy in 2015. It had nothing to do with students or student protests. It was just a social science faculty project of other researchers said, you know what, we actually need some political diversity. It'd be good if we had had you know libertarians and, and conservatives. And we happened to launch it in September of 2015, just before the Halloween affairs at Yale and elsewhere. But if there are listeners who are concerned about, about this purification of the universities, I urge you to check out heterodoxacademy.org. I urge you to check out heterodoxacademy.org if you're if you're a professor or an administrator, I urge you to join. If you are a philanthropist, I hope you'll support us. But there there are the, our problems are about our institutions more than about individuals who are going crazy. And so, so, so that's why I'm trying to do things that will improve. We're not out to help conservatives. We're out to help universities right. to, to attain their, their telos, which is... We're, we're trying to encourage maximal airing of different positions so we are better able to understand reality. It's as simple as that. One of the hopes I have is that when we currently look at Russia, we look at China, and you can see what a closed information loop can do. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has resulted in this horrifying war in Ukraine that seems utterly yes. pointless, that is yeah. fueled by an ideology that has also been curdling in its own juices for a long yeah, time with yeah. no real 
out, no input from anything else. Yeah. Similarly with China, this, this zero COVID policy right now. Oh, it's so dumb. It's, it's, well, it's both dumb and unbelievably cruel and horribly oppressive. It, it's not a society anyone would want to live in. They are taking people's pets away from them and murdering them so they don't oh spread God. COVID. They are oh locking people up. They've locked them up in their homes. They are starving. What I'm saying is that those societies are what happens when you close the loop yeah. on open discourse. And so one hope, one small sliver of hope out of those horrible experiences is that we better understand that we're actually our system was and is better it doesn't make the it can make mistakes as it did with Iraq, but it can correct them in a way that other societies cannot. That there is a great yeah. virtue yes. in open debate. Now, but I'm going to ask yes. you this last thing because it it's it's it, it personally one of the things you mentioned is that you know if if we all just stopped using social media, well, you cut it down by cut 50%. it by eighty percent. It has some uses. Eighty percent, but but, yeah. but 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 John, hmm? I can't. I, I'm bloody well addicted to it. I mean, I've not analyzed the addiction. It's 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 this it's 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 they rewired our brains in ways that are very hard mm -hmm. to get out of. If you want to yeah. feel, I mean, I'm in. A, I mean, I think if I didn't do my job, I might have a good. If I were a gardener, I think I could probably. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and part of me wants to become a gardener and not <laughs> read this stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. But if but if I'm in it, I can't. And then if I'm in it, I just can't. The, the, literally, I read these stuff that are designed to upset me or to enrage me or, yeah. to, or to inspire me, and I can't help myself. So yeah. what well, do I would we urge, do? Yeah. Well, first, I would urge everybody to, to read Cal Newport's book, uh, Deep Work. I teach that in my course here at Stern on uh, work, wisdom, and happiness. And because I listened to your conversation with Johan Hari, which is one of the best podcast conversations I've ever heard. It was just full of... Oh, highs and lows and humor and it was it was great. He's great. Uh, so I bought so I bought his book. I just started reading it. I think he has a lot of suggestions, but both of them point out this is not an individual willpower thing. Like yes, you can use your willpower, you can do better. But there have been structural changes in the workplace and elsewhere that make it very hard for us to get out of this. So once again, it's a complex dynamical system. It's some combination of, of, of legislation. I think there is a role for legislation, even though legislation is usually stupid and backfires. But things are so bad, we need the media companies to realize that if they don't start acting more responsibly, they're going to have the heavy-handed hammer come down on them. Could we so pass we a law that says, take out the like button, take out the retweet button? <laughs> Uh, if you if you have if you have a, if you're a social media company and you have those in there, we are going to deny you access. I mean, is, well, is okay, that wait, wait, feasible? Do? No, that is not directly, but I think I haven't checked this with any lawyers, but I think what could be done is Section 230 protection is this special protection for social media companies. Nobody has a right to be free from lawsuits. You know, I think gun makers or some you know some some groups have gotten Congress to give them exemptions. But it's very very rare. Normally, companies are, can be held responsible for the harm they cause. Section 230 gives them exemption for a lot of their activity. So we can't say, you know, you're not allowed to have this business model. Just, or, you know, the, But we can say, oh, you want Section 230 protection? Well, then you have to get these things. Otherwise, you're free to do what you want. Do what you want. You'll get sued like any other company, but you, you do what you want. So I think there are ways uh, that regulation. I do think either the FCC, the Federal Communication Commission, or the Federal Trade Commission both have jurisdiction here. And again, I think federal regulation is, is a sort of a last resort. I have a lot of friends who are libertarians and they hate this about me that I do think sometimes we do need reg regulation as with machine guns and lead in the, in, in, you know, lead in the air. 
Uh, I think this is one of those cases. I'd much rather that there be self-regulation by the industry or that there be technological innovation. There are a couple of new platforms. People are developing all kinds of platforms that are less toxic. Now, whether they'll actually take off, we don't know. But my there, view there is that, as long, that as, as long as the law deals with, doesn't deal with content, but deals with the structure of it, and, and namely, yep, like exactly. you, take a retweet, you take out a like, you're not, it could like anything. It's, it's the it, it could be right, left, or in the middle. It is the, it is the way it has been actually purposely designed for addictive purposes. And, and I think there are ways in which we can legislatively yeah. control right. that. But Andrew, I want to I emphasize the first thing you said there, which is the, actually the more important thing. It's not about content moderation. Wherever I go, whenever I have a conversation, everyone thinks on the, on the right, they think, oh, we can't have regulation because that's just going to be the lefty, you know, that's going to be, they're going to just shut us down and they already shut us down. So, you know, it's gonna, free speech, free speech. And on the left, they say, yeah, we, we need more content moderation because the right keeps saying things that are hateful. And so Congress will never agree on that. And you know what? What we learned from Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower, is that Facebook, which, you know, they, they put a, some resources, a lot of resources into English moderation, but not most other languages. And they only get a little bit. And a violence and intimidation, they get like 1% of the content, I think was something she said in her testimony. So content moderation is an unwinnable, stupid fight that will never resolve because of left-right issues. We don't have to. We can actually not ignore it. But I mean, there are certain things, child pornography, there are certain things that you have to. But the issue with social media is not that some people post terrible stuff. It's that, because people have always done that, it's that terrible stuff can get amplified by these dynamics to reach millions and millions of people. So it's the, so the, the regulation should not be about who gets to say what. It should be about what are the architectural features of a platform that make it unsafe at any speed. Twitter is unsafe at any speed right now, but there might be ways that it could be changed so that it it would it you know it could conceivably be good for democracy. I think we're a long way from that, but I think it could be made less fatal to democracy. So why will face will Facebook or Twitter not do this? I mean, purely financial. Right? They don't feel they have a responsibility to society. Well, it's, look, it's a competitive. So the clearest, so the clearest, the clearest thing is is with children. Why is it that Facebook doesn't do anything to? I mean, they say that they get yeah, underage users off, but my kids, nobody gets kicked off at the age of eleven or twelve because we know from internal documents and from common sense, the kids are all going to TikTok. So Facebook and Instagram are desperate to get those preteen kids rather than having them go to. So the competitive nature of of, of capitalism is you're competing for you're competing for market share. And the way I think we need to think about this is, you know, competition is great, innovation is great, but when you when you develop either monopoly power or information asymmetry or you're you're foisting costs on others, you know, external costs, harmful costs on others, or you're taking advantage of a, of a public good, you're, you know, like using up a common resource. Those are four reasons why we have regulation. And all of those apply to the case of Facebook. I do not have a problem with it, but then I'm not a pure libertarian. I'm, I'm a sort of conservative. And I think if something emerges that is destabilizing our democracy, it is perfectly legitimate to pass a law to mitigate that. It just it it yeah. it's and I don't I don't have a problem with that. And I think insofar as it would help defang the extremes and the trolls and the Russian or Chinese or whatever bots. Mm -hmm. Or the bots from the right, or the bots from the left domestically, because let's let's face it, lots of those too. Oh yeah. Oh, then yeah. then so be it. John, this has been fantastic. I'm so grateful. Thank you for allowing me to take the conversation in slightly odd directions. But I but the the piece is out. I I I love the whole Tower of Babel thing. It is a a fantastic metaphor for how great societies 
built upon great plans can unravel and collapse. I mean, that is the story here. Um, That's right. And as I pointed out to you, Oakshot has two essays called The Tower of Babel, which are both- I'm going to read them tonight. The two are important. Well, it's hard to find them, actually. One of them is in a book on history. Put them them in the show notes. Do you have show notes up? I can, yes, I, and I'll try. The trouble is, is that the 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 the, 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 the his last essay, on the Tower of Babel, is is incredibly hard to get. It's in a book on history. Anyway, it's a, it's complicated, but it's the only thing. It's the last I'm sure thing the he wrote. Can help you. Someone will find it for you if you put it out. Yeah, I'll I'll bleg yeah. it out. But yeah, last thing he wrote, and it's entirely fiction. He wrote a mm. he wrote a story, just a parable, and it's a a rather haunting parable parable and 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 at one point they discover one of the building bricks of the original tower in its wake of its collapse and they they brush it off and they see on it inscribed the following words those who in elysian fields would dwell do but enlarge the boundaries of hell (laughs) and that's that's his that's that's what he took anyway thank you john Thank you for what you're doing for the culture. Thank you for standing up for certain principles when others don't. Thank you for setting up the Heterodox Academy. And I look forward to this becoming a book, The Tower of Babel. Re, right. re, thank you very much, John, right. for, for coming. Well, well Andrew, it, it is great fun to read you. It is great fun to listen to your podcast. And now it's great fun to actually be on it. So thank you for having me on. Awesome. Thank you, John. And we have... We have Frank Fukuyama coming up. We have Tina Brown coming up. We have Barry Weiss coming up. I know that every lefty on Twitter is waiting for the Barry Weiss, Andrew Sullivan, but we like each other. There's no great conspiracy or plot. I just think she's great and plucky woman and did great things at New York Times and they treated her unbelievably horribly. I do not understand. Again, here's a classic example of a charming young journalist, a writer, just young Jewish lesbian woman who's, and she has become this object of unbelievable hate mm-hmm. sustained with no relationship to who she is. Mm-hmm. It's really just incredibly We live in an age of sacrilege, heresy, and mobocratic dynamics. We do. Um, but anyway, we will talk about it. I can't wait to talk to Tina as well. And we'll, we'll ask Frank if history really has ended and whether he ever said that in the first place, which he didn't. <laughs> so um, we'll, see you all, we'll see you all next week. Thanks so much for joining. And a final little plug. If you listen to this and love it and enjoy it, it's free. But we'd love you to help support us if you can. It's it's not that expensive. Just subscribe if you if you're enjoying these podcasts. We'd love you to be a bigger part of the community. We are we're booming. We just went above nineteen thousand paid subscribers, which is our highest ever. We're at almost one hundred ten thousand people getting this every week. So we're we're very psyched. But we'd love to include more people, and we'd love to get your support. So please do, and we'll see you next week on the Dishcast. See you then. Oh, and have a blessed Passover and a, and a glorious Easter. See you then.